Let us pray together. Father, would you take these moments now, um, really open my heart so that your heart can be really vulnerably expressed to each of us, that we might with our whole being listen to you and hear you. Be touched by your love and your grace and mercy. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to lift some names here. I'm going to ask you to think about this. They held the number one position on the charts. And see if you can kind of come up with that chart that was holding them in number one. Al Capone, Bonnie and Clyde, John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Pretty Boy Floyd, Ma Barker. What, what charts? Okay. I, you know, someone even in the first service said this as well. Music charts, it's not, you know, they sound like, like they're the latest rappers, you know, like, you know, Pretty Boy Floyd, Babyface Nelson. But that's, you're right. I think some of you said, what did they say? Most wanted or a, a very common expression in the 30s was public enemy number one. See, in the 30s, the U.S. used this label, which we now talk about most wanted, to describe individuals whose activities were seen either as criminal or extremely damaging to society. They were actually called a menace to the public good. And they were going to do all they could to get public enemy number one, put all our efforts and concentrate on getting that done. That title, though used in the 20th century for gangsters, was a very common title throughout history, public enemy number one. It was used for pirates. It was used for hoodlums and outlaws, as well as notorious criminals throughout the ages, and for murderers. There was in their society, in certain areas, someone who was an enemy to the public. What I think is really interesting is this actually goes back, this phrase, to the Latin and, the, and it was used as, in the Roman times as hostis publicus, a Latin phrase, hostis, which is an English derivative as hostile or meant enemy in the English. Publicus meaning public. So that's where we get that term. Now, I don't know if it was used as far back because it's a Latin um, word. But think about Sunday morning. Jesus entered to all this worship and praise. He entered as potential king and savior number one. All the people who gathered in Jerusalem, because they came from all different nations at that time as they were coming for the Passover, gathered and they recognized him as a potential savior. But within a, a week's time, probably less than four days, Jesus went from the potential savior to public enemy number one. He was, you know, walking down to palms and praises and within four days was being cursed and hearing crucify him, crucify him. I think about that. It's an amazing, amazing transition from that potential to all of a sudden be titled as a menace to the public good. They had another person at that time who was really public enemy number one. He had been caught. He had now been put in prison. His name was Barabbas. Do you know what Matthew calls him in chapter 27, 16? He calls him a notorious prisoner. Some translations talk about an infamous criminal. John calls Barabbas an outlaw. 
Mark and Luke state that he was involved in a riotous insurrection against the state and was a murderer. This was a no good, rotten guy that not just Rome wanted in prison, but so did those who were the Jews. He was public enemy number one. But when it came down to making a decision who is the greatest menace to society, and they had an opportunity in a trial after that Palm Sunday where they were recognizing him with palms and praises, now they said, who do you want? And they said, we would much rather have free roaming the streets Barabbas. Isn't that amazing? I was thinking about this and I thought as I was talking about this journey toward God, and we've been looking at what it means to journey toward God. Thinking about this, this person that John spoke of the first time we met here about four weeks ago, about this pivotal person, Jesus, how important he was to not just all of history, but to people's personal lives and through culture. This pivotal person, Jesus. And then I went and we shared about this unknown God who is around us and working for our good and moving in, in, in our life in ways we may not see. But you can just look out at creation and general revelation and see his handiwork. And then, as Peter shared last week, as you see through the life of Jesus himself, this this Jesus who shows us as he meets with tax collectors and sinners and, and prostitutes and all these, that this Jesus gives a posture of love towards those who are in a place of need. And I thought about it this week as we're talking about, about not just obstacles, but how do you clear the path? What's, think about this for a second. Have you ever given thought to who or what might be public enemy number one in your personal life? Your sphere of influence, the community that you involve yourself with, who would it be? I don't want you to share a name of someone sitting next to you right now. Um, but if you give a thought to that, who in your journey towards God, who is it that, that is both a public and private menace to your life? What would you say? Self, Satan. You might think of the world. You might think of your sins. But you know that, that God can deal with Satan and God can deal with the world around us. And, and God can actually and does deal with our sins. But one thing that is public, private, personal enemy number one in your life that, that God can't deal with is your pride. That is something you have to come to grips with. Because it's through your pride that you open yourself up to Satan. It's through your pride that you open yourself up to the influence of the world. It's because of your pride that it, it basically allows for the sins of your heart to flow through your life. And so when you look at this whole idea of public enemy number one, you see it very clearly throughout Scripture. And we're going to look at this today when we look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. You'll see the, the, the bottom line of this passage of Scripture is, is dealing with the pride in your life. And so you have to ask yourself, how does God deal with the pride in your life? So as you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, and he's writing here in the first part of chapter 2 after he's described this wonderful, gracious, merciful God and what he has done for us and all that he's given us. He starts out and he says there's a wall between you and God. And then he goes on a little bit later after chapter two, um, verse 10 through verses 11. There's a wall between you and other people. But the thing that has to come down that is making a mess of your life is pride. So he says, as for you, 
You were dead in your transgressions and sins. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world in the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You see right there, he's talking about two things that are going on. You are being lured by the world. And you have this ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, who is also at work in your life. Who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And disobedience refers to this pride of position of I'm going to do it my own way. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, which is that sinful nature, the sins, and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us. And you need to underline that, but because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. He made us alive even when we were completely, completely numb and dead and and out of touch with anything that God was doing. And it is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. Now here's verse 8, which is the one which reveals the death blow to all this sense of pride. Here's where pride is is shown very clearly as the menace to your own common good. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. This is nothing about you. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Even your good works are the result of God working humbly through you, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So how does God deal with our pride? This enemy who not only messes up our public, but our actual private and personal life as well. I'm sure you've experienced it. In fact, there's a sense that says in the Word of God that God um, opposes our pride. He says in 1 Peter 5, 5 and Proverbs 3, 34, the very same verse, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There is a sense that when you stand in pride, you stand against God and you then do not allow God into your life. So in one sense, you're very active in saying, God, I don't want you a part of my life. And it may be that you're in this place and have been in this place for some time. You, your whole life is about, God, I'm running my own life. You can bless me if you would like to, but I'm running this. Some of you may be in a place where you've opened your heart to God and you've humbled yourself and said, you know, God, I really want to go to heaven someday. But you know what? There's a whole lot of areas in my life that I really want to control and I want to maintain. And out of pride, you say, I'm doing it my way. And the only way that God can really begin to bless you, the reason he opposes the proud is merely this. He can't do anything with the proud. And so what the proud does is go on in his own way. And then God has to allow the consequences of that to take place. So if you look at these verses, you see the very first thing that God does is he sees our need. He sees our condition. He's aware that pride draws us away from him. On this journey toward God, basically what he says is pride stands up and turns away from God. These verses that we're going to read in just a moment in verses 1 through 3 are, are verses that are really pinned back to a scripture back in Genesis when you find the very first statement of pride that allows all the sin to give expression throughout humanity. It is when, when Adam and Eve have been told, don't reach beyond this and take this fruit, which is 
not meant for you. And so then Satan comes along. Satan goes and begins to, to appeal to what? Eve's pride. Begins to appeal to that pride and, and is lured by the world, by the, by the lust of her own eyes, to have what is not hers. And so she grasps out for what isn't hers. And she, through pride, allows for this to enter life. She feels shame. She feels apart from God. And that's what happens. So when you read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and I love the way the message says it. God sees our need. He sees our condition. He allows pride to run its course. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. Here's what happens when you unpride. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You, you filled your lungs with polluted unbelief. And then exhale disobedience. And that, you see that picture there? You're standing in pride and you're breathing in those things which are not really true with reality. And as a result of that, you exhale a life that is apart from God, without his presence, and cannot be lived in his blessing. And we all did it, all of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. And yet God sees it and is patient and looks at it. And sometimes he can only do this, let it run its course. And sometimes he lets you run the course of the consequences. You get mired in your sin and, and, and then God comes along because you'll see and But God in love. He has a posture of love towards his posture is not one of anger. We experience his wrath because we turn away from him. When we turn away from him. We say, God, we don't want your involvement in our life. And you can't walk in his love if you turn away from him. And so you see this picture of people doing what they want to do when they want to do it. There's a, there's a sense there's, that pride comes in two different ways. There's an arrogant pride that just sticks your hand up and says, forget it, God. And there's also foolish pride. And I think it's expressed in different ways. I, I have a dog that is now getting older and, and not able to, to roam like she used to. But her name is Lila. Looks like a black lab, but isn't. But this, this, this dog, this golden retriever, German short hair mix, doesn't know whether to point or do whatever it's supposed to do anyway, would, would often just out of kind of foolish pride, allow its nose to let her, she just follow where she wanted to go by scent. And so we, we ended up doing something that you might may think is mean, but it was really a loving thing. We got one of those invisible fences. But this dog is so arrogantly proud and foolishly proud that she would she didn't even care sometimes about the shock she would just and just keep going on i remember one time i was away traveling was when i was doing work for trinity down in florida and i remember one time getting a call from my wife and she said oh we've we found lila so what do you mean you found lila you know because she would wander and, and she actually um had wandered two miles away and the police somehow someone got hold of her knew that it was our dog my wife went over there and the dog was lying under the car shaking because she was away and trapped so mired in her foolish sin that she was just in fear and that she had to drag her out and i just thought to myself that we never wanted that but have you found yourself in those situations in even smaller areas of your life where pride has control, where you kind of just go foolishly, I'm just going to, this feels good. And God says, no, here's a limit. I really want you to stay here. Out of love, I want you to experience all my fullness, but you still walk across it. That's kind of what, what you see here is this picture. And then you cry like that. 
And God then, just like kind of we did, reaches out in spite of our pride, even though our foolishness and our own, you know, as he says, dead to sin, not even alive to the things of God, not even caring about those things. You can, in your own foolishness and arrogance, just be so off path and so far from him, or you can be just a little ways from him. And God still has a posture of love reaching out to you in spite of that. In fact, you see his posture of love show up in three ways. It says in in, in verse 3 and 4, like the rest, we are by nature deserving of wrath. So the reality is that when you walk away from God, you you are putting yourself in a position where he can't bless you. You are going to experience the consequence of your choices. And let me tell you, they're not going to be good. I like what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says this. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. Because people go, you know, is there really hell? Yes, there is a hell. Do people go there? Yes, they do go there. Is God kind of going, well, you can get in and you can't? Not at all. All that happens is a person in their heart says, God, I don't want you in my life. And you start a path away from God and you keep moving away from God. If you move away from the presence of God, which is all love, all goodness, all blessing, you're going to experience what's in your heart. And it will just come to full flower and it will eventually play itself out in your own personal hell. C.S. Lewis says, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which we will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. You, you think about anger for a second. Or it says it were nature of God's wrath. This idea of this, this anger. Anger, as we said in a few messages a series ago, was anger is, is no more than energy used for either good or bad. And every time when God uses it, he uses it for good. He is seeking to nip in the bud that which will become a flower so much so that it will it'll be the consequence that none of you anyone wants unless you turn to him that's the way god you know it, it's i look i liken it this way if if you were a person who was diagnosed with cancer and the doctor said here's the treatment if we cut it out you will live and there will be you won't have the pain and all the other things that would go with this kind of cancer and then if you look at him go no way i don't believe you i'm not going to do it and you don't and then you experience the consequences of it in this sense, they, they cut it out, which is pain. You go, why would you do that? Because God, in a sense, uses his energy to nip out our pride and our sin if we allow him to. And so instead of being angry and saying, God, I can't believe that this is where I'm at. He calls you to, to take responsibility and awareness of your life and to say, God, what is it you're trying to do in me? Not only does he reach out to us and he uses sometimes his anger, you know, that, that's 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 why these, um, you know, you talk about the laws of God. They're really an expression of his love. I mean, we didn't put an electric fence because we got a kick out of seeing our dog get a shock. We put it in because we didn't we, we live next to a busy road. And the last thing I want is her to get hit by it. God works in your life to to set up um, through his word. And, and I have to tell you, it's not about legalism. It's about just understanding what reality is so that we can enjoy the goodness of God. But there's another thing that you find in, in God. In his love, you see mercy. All of us were by nature deserving wrath. In fact, God is watching this. He's patient. He's looking at it. But God actually reaches out. He goes after. You know, if it was me and someone did something like, you know, said, forget you and then tried to ruin whatever I was trying to do and and could care less about it and spitefully, arrogantly, you know, I would go, go your own way. 
And God doesn't do that. God, out of deep love, will use even his energy to try and take you back into his presence to awaken you, even to the consequences that might be occurring to the choices you've made. And yet sometimes God, in mercy, even removes some of the consequences from the choices you made. That's that's getting less than you deserve. We all deserve to says here, wrath, but God sometimes goes, you know what? I'm going to give you a lot less than you deserve. He's rich in mercy. In fact, he's so wealthy in mercy that he will say, I will, I will act in your life in such a way that though you may deserve this, I'm going to give you less than that. The prodigal son stands before his father and says, Dad, with arrogant, foolish pride, I, I want my estate. He's just come of age. In fact, he may not even been fully of age at that time. He comes to his father and says, I want all of my, the wealth that's supposed to be assigned to me, knowing that it would really harm his father at that point, taking that out from the from the investment that had been made. His dad gives it to him, sends it on his way. He does all these things. He ruins it, spoils it, spends it, finds himself living amongst a bunch of pigs, eating what the pigs eat, decides, comes to his senses, which is repentance. He comes to awareness of the reality that he's at. And he says, man, my own foolishness has put me here. Maybe... If I go back to my father, maybe he will even show me mercy. And, and, and I'll probably never be a son again, but maybe I could be a servant that actually worked for him. And so he makes his way back. And here is God, the posture of love, which is, which is something that people don't like to hear. Because they like to think this God is angry and you're going to be, you know, he's after you. God is the father sitting there looking out, waiting for his son day after day to come. Finally, he sees his son. And instead of going ahead and says, yeah, be a servant. You're exactly right. He goes, no. He gives him great mercy. He could have given him a whole lot worse. And then he gives him grace. So that people will look at this father and go, wow. This God is full of love and grace. And the son comes in and he says, he gives him, you know, if grace is getting less than you deserve, if mercy is getting less than you deserve, grace is getting more than you deserve. He didn't deserve to be more than a servant, but he not only makes him a son, he kills a fattened calf and celebrates over him, and he actually gives him the seal. You know what a seal was? A seal was like a credit card in that day. He said, here, my bank account is open to you, even though you spoiled all that. But because of your change of heart and as you've moved into this place, I just, my presence, I give you Grace. I just want to share with you, if you are in this place and you're thinking because something you did in your past or something you're even doing right now, God is standing over you just angry. No, you've put yourself in a position where you experience it. God is looking right now into your heart and he's calling you. He's saying, come back to me. I have mercy and grace. Just return. I don't want you to live in the consequences of your sin. I want to take those from you. That's why he came on a cross. That he might take your sin and your guilt so that you can experience forgiveness. So God sees our condition, our need doesn't leave us there. He reaches down. And then here's what I, I want you to really pay attention to. We're told as we go on in this passage, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Because you see, I just, I just share verses 4 through verses 7 are, are all the, is all about God's grace. It's by His grace you've been saved. He raises us up with Christ. He seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. He didn't, he didn't need to do that. In order that in the coming ages might show us incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then he goes to the next plate. Not only reach out and does he do this, but here's what he provides 
for our condition. He actually moves in and makes us through his work and his work alone. He makes us one with God. He allows us to be with God. He says, join me in this journey. Journey not just only um, toward me, but with me into the deepness and into the intimacy and into the fullness of my presence. And when you think about this, this isn't just for our life to come. This is for life forever because God, if he is eternal, you are journeying with him, toward him, into him in such a way that it goes on forever and ever. And you don't even know the depths. We don't have any understanding of how good he really is. We are just touching it. We're not even hardly getting the appetizers of his goodness. Just imagine that. All that God has planned for you. One of the things that God's been doing in my life just recently is I'm beginning to experience some of the blessing of God after years of just seeking to to just walk in His love and His goodness and and, and to live this grateful life filled with joy, seeking in humility to just listen to His voice and do what His Spirit calls us to do. You will be blessed when you open your heart and say, God, come into my life and now I just help train me. To hear you and to walk with you. So what, what you find here in Ephesians 2, 8 and, and verses 8 through 10 is, is this provision of God where he removes any and all pride within you. He wants you to live completely, humbly dependent on him. The thing that will get you in trouble is your pride. Your pride will show up. And it shows up in my life. It shows up in our lives. It's just, it's, it's natural to us when what God is seeking to work out of us is what's demonstrated on the cross. Because what God did on the cross removes all pride. No one can stand before God. I can't stand before any other person if they, in any way that I'm better than you. Because what happens is I'm completely humbled with my sin. Anybody, when you do something wrong and you have to then confess it and say, you know how humbling that is? That's our life. There's a, there's a humility in the understanding that we are all in the same boat. And so you listen to Paul's words, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith in this, not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Jesus to do good works. God has completely removed any possibility for pride. God does everything. We do nothing. You had nothing to do with God taking away your sin and your guilt. When you recognize it and you're aware of it and you acknowledge it and you confess it and you... um, receive his love and and understand that if you're living with guilt right now, it is false guilt. You need to understand that Jesus has forgiven you and you need to learn how to forgive yourself. You know what keeps you from doing it? It's your own pride. And God wants to get rid of it. So what he does is this. He makes it clear to us that we it's not anything we can do. It's a grace, not of ourselves. You know, if it was pinned on something that you did, you could take pride in it. Then you could boast. You know, I go to church and I give money and I do a lot of things right. And Yeah, God, God's accepting me because there's something you've done. And what God wants to do is pull the roots of pride right out of you and every one of us. He wants us to know that we stand in his presence basically in one thing and one thing only because of what Jesus did on the cross, his work and out of God's love for you. That's it. Yeah, you can clap for that. This is the greatest news in the world. You are not. None of us. None of us are standing in the presence of God and His love and His blessing because of anything about us. It's all about Him. 
And that's the great place to be, because if it's all about him, there's nothing to be proud about. So what happens then is you understand because of that, because of his love towards you, because he sees your condition. He's noted that and reached out to you and he provides for it. So there'll be no pride. You in complete humility stand and just say, thank you. What is it I can do for you? Look what you've done for me. You know, what's interesting here is in in the evangelical world, I I have a real concern because what's happening is we read this. It is by faith. It's by grace. You've been saved through faith. And we even can make believing a work. You you think about it. We can say if you believe all the right things and get the I's and T's dotted and crossed, if you believe all these right things, then you're saved. No, let me give you good news. You are saved merely because of Jesus and Jesus alone. That's it. We're going to all be somewhat messed up on some certain theological things that's been happening throughout history, but the person who seeks to live in humility and walk in the grace of God because of the Spirit of God will reveal all things to us and will lead us into all what? Righteousness. If your heart is open, God will move you into that which is righteous. And faith is just believing the way things really are. Isn't that interesting? Faith isn't a work because faith, what, what faith is, is a total place of humility. And humility isn't some kind of false kind of humbleness like, oh, I'm no good and I can't do anything well. Humility is seeing, oh, this is what I have and this is what God's given me. These are gifts that he's been given me. And I'm so grateful because the great gift he's given me, I would love to use my gifts to help other people. And, and boy, God, if you, you see where an area I should go, if you understand there's an area that I need to bring, you know, bring forgiveness to or I need to ask to be forgiven, whatever, you need to move me into the, I'll move into those places because I want to walk in your presence. And I just want to walk in the reality of what's true in this life. Faith is just a humble life that sees things the way God sees things. And I was just sharing in the first service, you know, you don't get back flaps when, when, you know, going, someone doesn't come up to you and go, boy, good job today, Kevin, you're breathing. You know, you don't get attaboys, wait, attaboy, Kevin, that's great, you're eating. Too much sometimes. But anyway, you know, or, or good job, you're sleeping. You know the only time you do that? is when your life's messed up and you're not seeing things right. Then you come up and you say to someone, maybe who has an eating disorder and they've been just really seeking to understand God's love and and get a good understanding of who He is and begin to understand that it's not about their performance or any of those things. Then you come and go, man, I'm so thrilled that you're enjoying the gift of being able to eat, not in 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 a way that's putting your health in harm, but in a way that it's bringing health to you. That's great. Then you go, see, what God is saying, we're messed up. We don't see things. We live in pride. We've got this world messed up. We, we see things. But what God does is He brings us awareness so that we begin to understand that we are totally His by His grace and His goodness alone, and that we're called to always live just believing Jesus and that He's full of love. Knowing that reality, that if we, if we walk away from that and we part from what he says to be true, we will put ourselves away and apart from his blessing. And he will then, out of love, use energy, which sometimes we might call anger or discipline, to draw out of our hearts that which could flower into all kinds of bad consequences. He loves us so much. He loves you so much that he wants to bring you into his full presence. And the only way you stand in his presence, the only way I stand in his presence is to acknowledge this one truth, to see truth as it is, and that God loves you. That God is crazy about you. 
That God sees you right now, even if you're standing there and you're wondering and you're doubting like a Thomas going, I don't know if I believe it. God still loves you and He cares for you. And He will even be patient with you to work through it if you, if you are honestly working through it. He'll be patient with you as you seek to understand and know Him. And He will draw you more fully into His presence. And if you right now are standing in a place where you're still holding up your arm in defiance to God, He still loves you and He will still reach out for you. But he doesn't want you to, def- to die in that defiance. Because he wants to bless you. And so we see this faith as merely just seeing things the way they are. You know, the most secure children, if you look at the most secure children that were probably up here or that you see in life, they're usually deeply secure. Why? Because they have a very structured and ordered life that is full of love, that is consistent, that where they experience deep within their being a parents who not only express love, but even parents who themselves are secure in their love. That sets up a kind of environment where a child has all kinds of security. Don't you think your father in heaven wants you to be that secure? Don't you think your Father in Heaven is going, I just want you to be rooted and established in love so you can grasp how high and long and wide and deep this love is, that you might live in it and walk in it and and journey toward me, with me, into the depths of all that is. Forever and ever. Or you can choose defiantly to say, I don't want any of this. And go your own course. And you can experience some good things in this life. But you know what? You don't know how many steps you have. And if you're turning away and moving in this direction, the Word of God says that you, 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 will, you will end your life apart from Him in all goodness. And, and God does not want that. I just want to share with you this truth. There are, and there's lots of things, but there's three things that happen to a person who truly walks with God in love. They become humble. They're humble people. The church that really says we follow God are, are filled with humble people. The church that really follows God are filled with grateful people. They just go, I can't believe that this God loves me this much and he even sees my sin. He sees when I blow it and yet still loves me. And they're filled with joy because they know that all of life, even as you're going through some difficult times, you can be you're able to feel joy because you know that God's at work. He never abandons you. He doesn't leave you. He's still with you. Even if you don't experience his presence, you can choose joy as your strength because that strength comes from knowing he loves you. And you belong to him. So I just as we close the service and we hear this song, I belong I'm going to ask you to let it penetrate your heart and recognize the fact, the truth of this word, which are found in Romans. Nothing. If you choose to open your heart to him and you say, God, in your in humility, I come before you and I I ask that you would come into my heart and my life. Forgive me of my sin. If that's your prayer and if that's been your prayer, you belong to him. And I want you to think about it through this song. And if you are in a place where you're ready to say, God, in this area of my life where there's pride, I'm going to invite you in. Or if my life has been full of pride, I'm going to invite you in. I'm going to give you a moment as you hear this song to invite him into your life to do that.